0: Oh, here we are, about 24 hours into being here, with whatever the comings and goings of life, and uh, I wonder if the symbolism hasn't escaped you maybe, of the storm kind of raging around, and then the stillness here in the hall, and that sense of sitting in the eye of the storm. Much of meditation can be like that. A sense of looking for or feeling for the capacity to sit in the midst of what's happening in a way that has a certain quality of ease. Freeness. Quietitude. The capacity to sit w- with, sit in, uh, in, whatever is swirling around. And you know, as you, as you settle over the day, I imagine various things might be swirling around. I've sat with a lot of people and I've heard the not that much variety. <laughs> of what tends to happen, you know, because it's whatever the personal details that we add on, right, He's basically just human stuff that happens, you know, human body stuff, human mind stuff, human heart stuff. And so maybe, you know, as you kind of adjust to s- posture that you might not be so familiar with, or a length of time of sitting still that you might not be so familiar with, maybe there's some of that is what's swirling round, you know, kind of a st- a sort of storminess sometimes of bodily discomfort what we might you know be tempted to call pain or my aching back or shoulders or legs or whatever but that which if we really just sit in it sit in it rather than making a lot of drama rather than being in the storm of it and actually you know, really coming inside and feeling it what we start to notice is basically you know heat pressure density most of what we call pain is, is some combination of that. Mostly, an increase in heat and an increase in the sort of density of the sensation. And if we really notice that, you let know, yourself sit in the an intimacy with this increased heat and increased density. Maybe that might change the relationship to it. It's different. Oh. increased heat, increased density is different than oh my god, my leg is killing me. Right? has a different impact. Just being present in the experience or being caught up in and reactive around the experience. And then maybe you're some some of the storminess swirling around, just you know, the just the thought habits, the tendency to roam around a lot, in, in you know, in what in the tradition we call the three fields of time, roaming around in the past, either nostalgically or remorsefully, roaming around in the future, right, either um, charged with sort of fantasy hope or charged with anxiety, worry, fear, or equally just roaming around in the present. And sometimes in meditation circles, we, we, put all the, we sort of tend to demonize the future and the past as if everything's okay as long as in the present. But we can get just as caught up in the present as we can in future and past, right? Thought goes roaming around in a lot of commentary, description, analysis, judgment, And maybe that's some of the storminess—not just the fact that you know mind might be busy in various ways, and then the, again, the sort of the way we get caught up in the storm of that, sort of fighting with our mind, or by turns getting lost in all those thought productions, and then realizing we're lost, and somehow trying to uh, get rid of them or stop them, or um, making them into some kind of problem. And maybe there, too, there's that uh, invitation to to be present in the midst of. So that thought can happen like the sounds of the storm or the sounds of the birds can happen. It's perfectly possible to be clearly present, to hearing these sounds without being pulled along by them, pulled away by them, caught up in them. It's a little more tricky with thought because we tend to be more identified with the thought. When the sound comes, we don't think, oh, yes, that's me. Right. But actually, if we really sit in the midst of, present in the midst of thinking, we might notice that thought comes and goes in exactly the same way that sounds come and go. And that we can remain both as intimate with them and as independent from them. As we can with sounds. Just present in the midst of, present in this breathing body, and then bing, a thought of past, present, or future. Bing, a thought of something pleasant or unpleasant. Bing, a thought about how long till the bell rings. Bing, etc., you know, etc. Et and you know, maybe that when we're caught up in the storminess, that. Qu- quality of stillness and presence might seem might seem far away difficult to attain in some way but actually it's no distance at all away no degree of difficulty at all away it's right here that capacity just in this moment of sitting in this moment of witnessing in this moment of a thought arising sometimes you think oh well maybe after a few days of settling Or maybe after I've done a few more retreats. Or maybe if I came and did a three-month solo retreat, then maybe I'd be ready. But you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Because you can't ever be in that imagined other moment. And please don't wait that long. There's you're present here, and there's a thought that's arising here. You can cultivate that intimacy that presence, that clarity, right here, right here. And the important part of that is that culti- you can cultivate it and give rise to a moment of it. And then, moment by moment, cultivating, giving rise to a moment of. Rather than trying to kind of confect some kind of long period where that happens over. One of my teachers used to say, short moments, many times. Practice for short moments. Don't come and meditate for 40 minutes. It'll kill you. Come and meditate for a short moment. Short moment. Short moment. About a third of a breath, maximum. (laughs) Can you stay present for 40 minutes? Oh god. Can you stay present for a third of a breath? Oh, yeah, I reckon. All right. Can you be inside this moment of hearing? This moment of bodily sensation. This moment's thought production. Good. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, maybe that's some of what's uh, swirling around, just the stuff of bodily life, the stuff of habitual thought life. And then there's also um, elements that aren't just, you know, uh, some of the elements that get a bit more psychological grab on us. Things that have a bit more intensity. Things that seem like they kind of, uh, that we're more invested in. And there's lots of different ways to speak about those things. And we spoke yesterday a little bit about this sense of being free in our biology, You know, human possibility, our human mysteriousness, our human limitations as well, right? Some of the physical discomfort, part of our human limitations. And also part of that human biology is just, you know, the kind of our inherited, uh, what, our psychological inheritance, instinctual inheritance. Actually, there are many, many layers, right? We've got our family inheritance, you know, that which you um, that which you learned growing up, not necessarily learned consciously, but just all that you've absorbed through your life as part of your inheritance makes us who we are, and then in uh, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, actually in most of the uh, kind of contemplative traditions, one would say more than just that inheritance there's the inheritance of you know, great lines of ancestors, inheritance of previous lives. And so uh, without getting into the specific cosmology of that and whether one accepts or doesn't accept any of that, just that sense of, oh, of a kind of vast stream of inheritance that has its fruition in how you are right now in how body's configured, how mind is configured, how beliefs are configured, how the heart is configured uh, how you're orientated to reality it's interesting that some of the most recent uh, genetic research could actually find uh, the genetic markers that back up through the generations and the way that that You know, we actually biologically, cellularly, can can find the genetic markers that go back through several generations. Interesting, if one's interested in that kind of thing. Otherwise, one also can sometimes just sense that kind of one's ancestry, lineage, uh, kind of um, all of that inheritance, without being able to kind of fix it in particular ways. And then there's our uh, uh, instinctual heritage, inheritance. You know, we've got, the, we've got these, not just human instincts, actually, but just uh, you know, the instincts that are shared by all living beings, it seems. You know, that sense of we've got below our uh, human brain, and whatever cortex that is, then there's the kind of general mammalian brain, and then we've got a kind of reptilian brain, or at least those bits of the brain that still function as they did and can still be observed functioning in the same way for us as they do for pretty much all other life forms. And we have a kind of veneer of sophistication as humans over the top of all of that stuff. But actually underneath we're subject to the same kind of instinctual drives. The three classic instinctual drives, the survival drive, sex drive and the social drive and maybe some of those things are swirling around you know, as you sit here actually meditation retreats are a, like a kind of a perfect arena for those things to swirl around on the one hand we sort of a meditation retreat is actually designed to well, it, we might, it might look as if it's designed to deal with those things. Survival drive? We're okay. Mm, food's being prepared for us. Warm enough? Maybe more or less. You have know, got shawls, if not. You know. The basic kind of uh, requisites for our physical well-being are intact. Okay. And then sex drive? Well, we've sorted that out. And if it's not clear, this week... You're not getting any. just leaving each other alone, solitary practice. And then the social drive. We've also just managed that, right? We're being in silence with each other. So as a, the container of the retreat is one that has a kind of very kind of clear way of dealing with all of those things. But of course, just because they're dealt with situationally doesn't mean they're dealt with internally. And in fact, the very fact that they're dealt with situationally and we don't have avenues to get into acting out those instincts means we get a powerful opportunity actually to see how they get stimulated inwardly. The the survival drive, like I say, our basic survival needs are well taken care of here. Right. But, you know, we have this instinctual inheritance. right? So just because the actual need is taken care of ex- externally it doesn't stop that stuff from swirling around. And if the basic needs are actually taken care of, well, what happens? Comfort is one of the places, right, where that the, the instinctual drive, the survival drive says basically, you know, I need to be secure, I need to be okay, I need to be safe. Right? And even when ooh, the environment is basically trustworthy for one for one where we can be, you know, okay and safe and cared for. And if that, and for some of us, you know, we, you probably find as I go through one or other, we, you probably find you recognize all of these instinctual movements, and you probably find, you know, we have a certain um, favorite, you know, one that tends to pred- predominate for us. So for some, as I say, they kind of the attempt to be comfortable. when we look at the schedule. Mm-mm. Let me see, how can I just tweak the schedule a bit to make myself a bit more comfortable? And we go in to sit in the lounge and we're scanning, which is the most cozy chair to sit in. And the bell rings for med- walking meditation. It's like, let me just go and have a cup of tea first. You know? And there's a kind of attempt to sort of withdraw into a, a, a kind of a, a little bubble, a cocoon of a protective feeling, a secure feeling, a comfortable feeling. And for somebody for whom that instinct predominates, you see that sort of playing out in the world as well, it's like, it's a sort of, that movement, like somebody who wants to, always want, who feels good when the cupboards are full, you know. And there may be reasons one can find in one's history, right, where there's been some sense of insecurity. Or where one's well-being or comfort or security or safety hasn't felt well assured. And so that instinct becomes a kind of coping mechanism. Let me try to make things comfortable and safe and secure. And then the hope or the belief is, and then I'll be okay. And one takes oneself as the main object for that security. Right? I need to do what I need to do for me to be okay it's interesting the first The first sort of ten years of my practice, most of the retreats I did were in uh, monasteries in Asia, and uh the comfort level is somewhat below here in the monastery I used to say and in, in thailand the the pillows were made of wood, literally. <laughs> I mean, there was some accommodation to comfort. The wooden block that we had as a pillow had a little dip carved in at the top of it. So you rest your head very comfortably in the dip. And uh the retreats in the in the monastery in India. We used to have this month long retreat every year in, in Bodh Gaya. It was very cold in Bodhgaya in the winter, sometimes two or three degrees in the morning, foggy, cold water, bath at 4.30 and then Mm -hmm. morning sit sit sitting there cold and then (coughs) when it warms up during the day hot and uncomfortable and then in the evening tons of mosquitoes uncomfortable and then the women were in dormitories kind of eight women in a small dormitory all kind of squished up together and the men there was one dormitory for like 50 or 60 men, all snoring and farting together in the basement of the, of the underneath the main shrine room. And there was a lot of rats in that, uh, in that basement. One time I woke up, there was a rat chewing on my hair. I had dreadlocks in those days. And he had pulled the dreadlocks through my mosquito net and was chomping on the end, <laughs> on the end of it. But one of the things that was interesting in, the, in those retreats was basically it was quite clear, except for, for to a few unfortunate people who suffered a lot, it was mostly clear to people that you better just give up trying to be comfortable because the options <laughs> were very, very few, right, and <clears throat> it was a very beautiful time for me, those those. Uh, actually it was about 20 years that i went to that retreat month-long retreat every year first 10 years sitting it and then uh, christopher invited me to teach that retreat and i started going there for that but there's something about the kind of the simplicity the and the lack of control that it invited when really just invited by the circumstance to give up The attempt to kind of fuss with experience, fuss with my comfort, fuss about, you know, which bed I'm going to get because they're all crap, (laughs) right? And I think it really contributed somehow to the intensity and the potency of those retreats. Of course, it may be, I don't want to idealize this kind of exotic vision of monastery practice in Asia, although maybe it doesn't sound idealizing anyway, right, when it's all about rats and mosquitoes. But it may be that being here at Gaia House has a similar sense, maybe, for some of you. You Sharing a room might feel like you're out of your comfort zone. Right. Having meditation sittings that are maybe longer than you're used to might feel out of your comfort zone. Having food that might not accord with your preferences, certainly, but for others might not actually accord with your health <coughs> needs very well. Oh, it might be out of your comfort zone. But there's, there's a real practice invitation in there, you know, to enter into that place where the the anxiety or the reaching for security starts to swirl around. And just to see if one can stay. And stay with a certain quality of tenderness, of graciousness, of openness, of surrender. An opportunity to see, you know, that it's it's better to be free than to be comfortable. And of course, within that, we take care of bodily needs, like we were hearing from somebody this morning, right? might be a good reason why it's not wise to sit on the floor and shift to a chair. It might be a good reason why it's not uh, (coughs) wise to sit still beyond a certain length of time. You know, a lot of the discomfort that happens in meditation is kind of meditative discomfort, you know, which is magically healed by the bell ringing. Right? It's like, oh, 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 and then ding, oh. Right? Mm-hmm. And one gets on great, some great relief when the bell rings. Why? Is it the magic power of the bell? Right? Or is it the fact that one is sort of doing something? You mm-hmm. know? And then uh, when one knows one can move, the bell rings. Oh, you stop doing it, that. And then when you're the sitting ends, the... the terrible intensity that you were sure meant you needed to see an osteopath, right, it's suddenly, oh, it has gone. it has gone. And then you come back and sit again and oh, back again. If that's not in your experience yet, don't worry. It's only day one. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> right. And then, of course, there's some, some discomfort, which is sort of another order. If there's some discomfort that's related to some injury or some illness or some chronic condition, there's some kind of discomfort that's happening. And if it's there just as much during the meal time as it is during the, the meditation time, then you really might need to do something about it. In fact, that's a good, that's a good gauge. If you're not sure whether what's happening is sort of meditation pain-type intensity... Or if it's actually some physical concern, see how present it is during supper. That's a good gauge of how to meet it. And then even even with the meditative pain, right? There's a a certain way in which it's really worth sitting with it, in it. What we were just saying about just kind of oh, surrendering one's preferences. Right? One's fussing and fighting and grasping for things to be different, better, etc. And just actually cultivating a certain gentleness and tolerance and spaciousness. To sit in the eye of that swirling storm of discomfort. And then it may be after some time, you know, that you can't do that anymore. That the, the discomfort has gotten intense, or at least all the energy resources have just waned a bit. And now you're not cultivating spaciousness anymore. Now you're just kind of gritting your teeth and, and like just, you know, hanging in there grimly until the bell rings. And if that's what you're doing, then it's also not wise to carry on sitting with it. Right That's the time when it's actually wise, more helpful, oh, just to move oh, actually give some relief to kind of redirect your attention in a more helpful way, and so we get to see whether it's in some of the ways you know that, that, that the the they're grasping for comfort or security or for protection play out in our wider spheres of life or whether it's you know how they play out just moment by moment in the microcosm of our rest of our life called you know this retreat just to see how much you know you can lean gently in to the way things are despite one's kind of the tendency to to grasp for how they could be or should be different. To lean in to that possibility to really know and taste a freeness of being that's available despite the fact that body may be uncomfortable, that mind may be uncooperative. Maybe those moments of discomfort uh, can be certainly a teaching, maybe even a blessing. And then, you know, the sexual instinct. Right? Sex doesn't get spoken about enough on meditation retreats. It seems maybe it's just British meditation retreats. Right? There seems to be some kind of uh, unspoken agreement that it's not really not here for that. We're so just meditation, good intention, good. Mm. Right? But you know, that's one of the places mind can easily go. It's one of the places mind loves to go. It's one of the the things that has a lot of intensity to it energetically. So in some ways it's the opposite to the survival instinct. The survival instinct is all about how can I be the object for my own safety and protection and well-being. How can I feel safe, comfortable, etc.? Sexual instincts, it's all about how can you do it for me? How can you make me feel good? How can you make me feel okay? Whoever the you is, right? might be a familiar you. might be an imagined you. It might be the you that's sitting, you know, three people in front of me or, you know, somewhere in the hall. The you that magically we found our shoes next to each other outside of the hall and this must be a sign. <laughs> And just all the the intensity of that—that might be, you know, sometimes that's what's swirling around. And it's, you know, most obviously, right? And when you speak about it as the sexual instinct, it most obviously is fixated on a person, a sexual object. But actually, it can also be focused on any sort of source of pleasure sometimes it's it is lunch you know becomes the main fantasy object for us right and lunch i mean it's all right the lunch here you know but it's it's not you know nothing special but it becomes you know the the all the attention going there as if the lunch is the great salvation right and as i say maybe first day maybe it's not reached that level of intensity yet but man you know because there's that's where the sensuality is right of the of the day is the meal times and so just the way we can go to there whether it's a person in a more obviously kind of more, with a more obviously sexual element to the attention going there or if it's you know it, just some imagined experience that you're waiting for or hoping for whether immediate you know or, like a moment in the retreat, or some imagined thing you're thinking. When I get there next week, or whatever it is. Right, the tendency to invest energetically, a lot of hope and fantasy energy into a particular person or object or situation, and with the idea it will do it for me. And just like with the survival instinct, nobody ever managed. To make themselves feel comfortable enough and secure enough to just totally relax and be okay, it's not right so we see that it, oh, it's, it it's gives the promise of well-being, but it actually just keeps one in that loop, like a neurotic loop of you know always trying to reinforce uh, a, a degree of security and comfort that actually one never arrives at. And then it's the same, the sexual instinct, right? However much one projects onto a particular object, a person, a sexual object or a situational object, it just however good it might be, sex can be good, but it's never that good, right? It's never good enough that it actually oh, completes us, but it actually allows us to completely relax our hope for getting some sort of fulfillment fulfillment from out there from that one we might give a momentary ecstasy a momentary feeling of great fulfillment great well-being great uh, pleasure and then subsides and then what happens i need a new object right or maybe the same object repeated but you know and then that leaning out, leaning out, leaning out of ourselves. So you can see that playing out just as we sit here in the eye of the storm. You can see that playing out in our lives. And in the wider sphere of life, it's not necessarily that it plays out just around, when I call it the sexual instinct, it's not actually just around sex, right? But it's that fixation on a particular source and then my well-being becomes dependent on on you right on what you do or what you say or how you relate to me and to whatever extent that you are, one notices that swirling around right. the tendency especially when you get caught in sexual fantasy right and wow, I spent a lot of time pinging between these two poles in my early practice. Right? The two poles of, on the one hand, just like getting really caught up in all the lurid detail right, of the fantasy object, and then just imagining how it would be and how I might orchestrate things to make it be like that, and etc. etc. Right? and getting kind of lost in the. Um, The energetic intensity. It's very pleasurable. Fantasy is very pleasurable at the beginning. Oh yeah! It certainly seems way more interesting than sitting here breathing. Right? And then remember what we were saying about the lack of stimulation. Oh, bit of sexual fantasy. Woohoo! Stimulation level goes right up. So the, on the one hand, that pole of just investing in the fantasy, investing one's hope, investing one's kind of uh, you know all of the energy in that. This, uh, as if the belief that somehow I can make it real by doing that, and yet if we follow that track, we see that actually what starts off as as a very pleasant object, right, the idea of fulfilling that fantasy, actually becomes quite frustrating, because. You know, because you're actually reinforcing the sense of distance from the object. The sense of the object being not here, not actually getting what you want. And then we tend to flip to the other pole of trying to, oh, okay, okay, I've just got to forget it, come back to the breath. Okay, I'm trying to kind of push away, you know, it's not easy to push away sexual energy. Especially when then you stop pushing it away and invest in it again. And those tend to be the two poles, right? You invest in it, invest in it, invest in the pleasantness of it until one's kind of exhausted by it or frustrated by it. And then having built it up like that, you try to stop it. So what's the how does one find freeness in the midst of that? One that's free from investing in the fantasy story and scenario and one that's free from basically being in conflict with just the normal stuff, sexual energy. It's totally natural. Right? We like pleasure. We want pleasure. Whether it's specifically sexual pleasure or any other kind of sensory experience one's fixated on. It's normal to want. It's normal to want to enjoy. It's normal to enjoy the kind of exquisiteness of sensory pleasure, sensual pleasure, sexual pleasure. So to, to, to lean in, actually, to that place where we can really sit in the eye of the storm, to sit in the heat of desire, to sit in the wanting, to sit in the way the cells are lit up. Right? Lit up with aliveness, Lit up with you know, sexual desire. It's a fantastic, powerful force. And let yourself be lit up with wanting, whatever the the wanted object is. To let yourself feel the way your system's lit up with wanting, without either investing in the story, scenario, imagery, and without doing battle with yourself and trying to shut it down. And let it swirl like the storm. Let yourself be the heat and aliveness and eroticism of that kind of organic moment, bodily moment, energetic moment, instinctual moment. That movement in you that kind of reaches out into the world and wants to embrace it, wants to be intimate with wants to surrender into, wants to get uh, uh, caught up in, lost in, wants to really give yourself to. A lot of, uh, that's a lot of what's at the heart, right, of the, of the movement towards sexual, uh, the, the sexual instinct or sexual fantasy, it's the, the, the fantasy of losing oneself in intimacy, losing oneself in pleasure. What might it be like to really stay in the movement and to just keep dropping the specific fantasy and story and, and not to be afraid of it, not to try to shut it down, squash it, hide it under your cushion. Mm, to sit freely in the middle midst of that uh, movement. And then also the survival instinct. uh, The sorry, the social instinct. Right. So if the survival instinct is all about me, the self trying to make the self feel okay, and then the sexual instinct is all about you, right? Me trying to get you to make me feel okay. The social instinct is kind of that which goes out to the world. I want the world, it's rather grandiose, I want the whole world to make me feel okay. Mm-hmm. And even though we're in silence here and we're kind of, much of the time, eyes are down or closed and it's all about breath and body, etc. For some, one can get much more interested in what everyone else is doing, right. What others are doing, how others are doing, and what others are thinking about wh- how I'm doing. Right. Even though others mostly have their eyes closed as well, we're sure that they must be. You know, surely they're mostly paying attention to me, aren't they? You know? And one can that one can do that in a kind of inflated way, or can they? Can they see how straight I am? Right. Etc. Or one can do that in a kind of painful, contracted kind of a way. Oh, oh you know, when I cough and that, oh, what do people I'm disturbing everybody. I know, and feels uh, uneasy or uh, nervous or, or kind of uh, you know. If, if you change your position of your legs, often people will say, oh, I'm, sh- I'm worried about disturbing the people around me. Right, and the way our attention kind of bounces out to the room, as it were, and back again. What do they think about how much lunch I took? Who knows if they they even noticed how much lunch you took. And so that kind of um, complicated relationship, imagined relationship with the world, right, and and a particular lens through which we're seeing other people and the imagined lens through which we think they're seeing us and you might see that playing out swirling around again in the wider spheres of life mm, that plays out there's kind of looking for the approval of others or kind of pulling for attention N- trying to be or needing to be the centre of attention in some ways I know it's not very British that right but um, it's actually one of the problems when, you know British culture is one that sort of frowns upon we call that showing off you know? I just came from a few weeks in the, in the US where what we call showing off has much more cultural uh, support there than in the States. We just call that like showing up, right? Being fabulous. Here I am. Lots more position, lots more cultural permission for that. You know, Notice when I'm there for a while, and I go into shops, and I say, "Hey, hi, how's it going?" And then I come back here, and I go into a shop, and say, "Hi, how's it go?" Oh, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. <laughs> it's a little, little more uh, stepped down somehow. But even though it doesn't ha- that that sort of extravagant expression doesn't get so much cultural permission here, there's a way in which it's a very natural human instinct, an essential human instinct. We want to be loved. We want to be seen. We want to be approved of. We want to be uh, reassured. Right? We want to be supported. And that's really what's at the, the heart of that instinctual movement of, of looking for how others are doing and how they, how they seem to be seeing me, approving of me or not approving of me. So it might be a little, you know, playing out a little more low level here on retreat. But, you know, another way it can play out is just as judgment of others, right? And we find ourselves, we don't want to be judging others. I'd really r- like to just leave everyone alone to have their retreat. But I find, <coughs> why did they not put their flip-flops together when they, da-da-da, or, you know, Just a little sort of low-level kind of complaint that's often going on all the time, right? Just a little sort of snipey, naggy, moany uh, commentary on other people that then starts to stand out to us in the silence. So, and for some, you know, that can be actually the predominant instinctual movement. Some of us it's more the you know the way the self relates to the self survival instinct for others of us it's more the self relates to a sense of you right? sexual instinct fixation on a, a on a particular, and for others it's more ju- the way we kind of relate to and draw on and seek approval from the whole world survival instinct that used to b- happen to me a lot on retreat, you know especially doing the walking. you' just sitting and just sitting, but in walking meditation I'd be out walking on the lawn in the monastery and just oh just being pulled how fast or slow other people are walking. You know, he's rating people on a scale of how mindful they looked, 1 to 10. <laughs> I'm not sure I quite did that, but you know that sort of thing. Oh, her walking meditation looks really good. And then of course that become maybe I should walk more like that. You know, and then one becomes more interested in looking mindful than in actually being mindful. Or I'd be walking along and then I'd see the teacher at a corner of my eye pass and then immediately, oh, to check myself, the teacher's coming. What, what do I need to do? Right? I don't need to do anything. But that kind of, you know, outward neurotic concern as if somehow if I can get the way people see me right then I'll feel okay. Right? That's the, the kind of painful knot at the heart of all these instincts is the way they're in themselves. They're natural. Huh? Natural to want to be comfortable. Natural to want uh, uh, pleasure. Natural to, to, to kind of seek some kind of reassurance from outside. But we kind of, when we don't understand the, those instincts, when we haven't really, when we don't let ourselves inhabit those instincts, when we can't let go of the neurotic overstimulation of those instincts, right, then we're beholden to the, that those knots at the beginning. If I could get that right, then I'd be okay. Except we never manage to quite get it right. You can never get quite comfortable enough oh, to give it all up. You can never get quite enough satisfaction or pleasure to give it all up. You can never get quite enough approval from the world to just let it drop. So instead of relentlessly and exhaustingly pursuing that attempt, we come back and sit inside it and let it swirl around. You know, with a survival instinct, just uh, gently coming back. And when you notice that basically your attention's going out to the world. Out there, to the them out there, to the what they think of me or what I think of them. And just gently coming back and cultivating the sense of how you can be your own authority. You want to know how mindful you look? Or you just come back to how present you feel. Right. you want to know uh, what they think of you well just come back to see well how are you holding your, your own sense of things you know? what kind of ideas are people having about you well what kind of ideas are you having about yourself right? when we start to actually treat ourselves with a certain respect and dignity and care our imagined views of others become a lot less important so to sit in the eye of that storm right to sit in the midst of that instinctual movement is to yeah to accord oneself dignity care respect to really feel the goodness of your intention here sitting tracking your experience, being interested in something profound, subtle, important, liberating, finding out moment by moment how to inhabit our situation freely. Inhabit our human life freely. Inhabit our human instincts freely. Inhabit this very moment, however it is, freely. How to sit in the eye of the storm while it all swirls around us and through us. And to feel for our inherent freeness of being.